So welcome everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining uh, our presentation today. We're gonna be discussing common law separations, rights and obligations. Uh, so my name is Stephanie. I'm an articling student at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. And I'm just gonna start off with some introductions and let you know what's gonna be on the agenda for today before passing over the mic to our panelists. In the one hour presentation, Russ, Adam and Bill will be sharing their insights on the following topics as it applies to common law separations. So the arrival of the toothbrush, definition of spouse, the main similarities to marriage, how common law couples are different than married couples, child support, spousal support, property, joint family ventures, parenting rights and responsibilities, when common law couples separate and the limitation periods for common law partners. So there will also be a question and answer portion at the end of the webinar. Also, please keep in mind this content is to provide you with general information. It's not considered legal advice. We'll be providing links to helpful resources mentioned throughout the event. So now on to some great lawyers, some amazing introductions. It's my pleasure to announce the hosts from the greater Toronto area. We have Russell Alexander, Adam Borer, and Bill Rogers. Adam Borer, what a handsome fella. So Adam is an associate lawyer. Did he pay you to say that? He did, didn't he? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Adam is an associate lawyer at our firm, and he practices in all areas of family law, including collaborative family law, divorce, child support, spousal support, domestic contracts, and property-related issues. Adam represents clients in litigation, negotiations, and various forms of family dispute resolution. Adam was called to the bar in Ontario in 2013 after graduating um, with honors at Bond University in Australia. So prior to joining our team in 2015, he practiced both family and criminal law. And if he's not working with clients, he'll be found spending quality time with his family or playing sports. Another handsome fella, Mr. Oh Bill Rogers. Now I know you've been paid off. <laughs> Bill is a managing associate lawyer at our firm. He believes ex expertise and compassion are both essential in helping clients get through their family law issues. Bill's courtroom experience includes numerous motions, several blown out trials, and he's also had the privilege of winning a major family law victory at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Beyond litigation, he favors out of court solutions and collaborative law. Bill is also an award-winning journalist published in The Lawyers Weekly, National Post, and the Globe and Mail. And when he's not practicing law, he loves spending time playing music with his band. Bill, what's your band's name? It's uh, Soul Custody, S-O-U-L. But under the circumstances, I may have to change it to Soul Decision-Making Responsibility with right. new changes. Gotta keep it, gotta keep it updated. Contact order. <laughs> Contact order, live. Beautiful. <laughs> And now on to Russell Alexander. He is the founding, founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and experience in collaborative family law. He uses his expertise with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. So now that you know a little bit more about our team, and what we have on the agenda for day for today, I'm going to hand things over to you, Russ, and uh, take it away. Not going to let you go yet. This couple <laughs> quick questions came in. Put your questions in. We love it. Um, somebody says, "Who hasn't been found nude in a garden?" Well, I guess you'd have to be here for the uh, water cooler session to understand that answer. Uh, I only have a question about assets and separates. You guys get involved in 
real estate litigation and common law separation. So we're going to cover that off when Adam talks about property. We're going to run a poll question. Uh, we're going to throw it on the screen. Uh, some of the feedback we've been receiving from previous live events that are the polls are great because you get a chance to interact. Also give us an understanding of who our audience is. This program actually was a result of a request from an audience member to present on common law. So your feedback is deeply valued. All right, so let's take a look at our poll today. What's your reason for joining us? Um, maybe we could run the results and see what we got. All right, 67% law professional interested in learning more, 18% professional in other field, uh, currently going through a separation, 14% and other, and you can put your other in the comment box. So fairly strong professional crowd today, which is great. We can have a higher level discussion. We're gonna do one more quick poll, and then we're gonna get the pleasure of um, Bill talking about, uh, what? what are you talking about? The charades or something? The crusades. <laughs> charades. All right, poll number two. Uh, when should a couple be considered in a common law relationship? So you've got a couple choices here. After three years of cohabitation, if they have a child together, when the toothbrush shows up, when one spouse gives up their house or apartment. So the toothbrush, you have to give props to Phil Epstein. This was his tongue-in-cheek way of announcing the case law in terms of determining when the actual relationship starts. Uh, so if you've got a toothbrush at your spouse's place, good chance you're in a common law relationship. Uh, but we certainly miss Phil. He was a, a real asset to the practice law and the um, profession. Let's see what our results are. All right, 55% after three years of cohabitation, 37% if they have a child together. When the toothbrush shows up, only 4% like my uh, toothbrush thing. Or once one spouse gives up their house <clears throat> or apartment, 4%. All right, let's make a start. Bill, what you got for us? Well, the, um, the interesting thing about common law that a lot of people don't know is it's not the same as being married. Well, certainly not in Ontario. <clears throat> um, if you're married and you break up, um, property gets split up according to a formula called equalization. And basically that they look at what you had when you got married and what you had when you separated and they take uh, the two numbers, one for each person and they equalize them. So they make sure you're both up by the same amount. And that is what happens when you're married. You're not married. You don't get that automatic equalization formula. You basically have to use what they call trust law and make what they usually call a joint family venture claim. And then you have to kind of prove that you deserve to share in, in property because there has to be a link between you and the property. Um, and trust law is an ancient uh, concept. This is completely useless information, but it started with the Crusades in England where someone would leave England and go fight and they would uh, put their property in the hands of a friend. They'd sign it over and say, when I come back from the war, give me my property back. And uh, a lot of times when they came back, their friend wouldn't, they would renege. So they'd have to go to court and do what they call a trust claim and say, my friend was holding my property for me in trust. 
give it back. And that's how trust all started. So that's what you do now if you're not married. Uh, but there's no requirement that you have to go off to fight in a war. Good. Yeah, although maybe there should be. And there's a lot, we could do a much deeper dive into the various trust concepts, right? You got constructive trust, resulting trust, joint family venture. We've got a common law program, 202 or 201, which is advanced subjects, where each one of these we could easily spend an hour on. But let's yeah. go to our next poll question because we haven't done a poll for a few minutes. Thanks for that introduction, Bill. So, poll number three, we have. Um, Let's see what it says here. If a couple dates and vacations together, but never buys a place together, and both spouses keep their own residences, should they be considered common law spouses? It almost sounds like a law school question, right? So they're dating, they don't buy a place, they both have their own place. Are they spouses? So, you know, the toothbrush, maybe they have two toothbrushes here, Bill, I don't know. So never, never, this is an absurd question. Yes, if they have children together, it depends on whether they present themselves to their friends or community as a couple. Yes, if they've been together three years or longer or other. All right, so we're gonna actually answer this question, but let's see what our poll results are. 18% says never. 37% says yes, if they have children. Almost 40% says depends, as if they presented themselves as a couple. Yes, if they've been together three years or longer and no other. So we're gonna actually include a case in the show notes that actually very closely mirrors these facts. But before we get into the distinctions, let's talk about married couples and just to illustrate the differences, Adam. Uh, thanks, Russ. I'm just going to go through a couple of main similarities uh, that common law relationships and common law couples have to married couples. And the first similarity relates to parenting when we talk about things like custody and access of children. So both parents, um, whether you're married or you're common law, are entitled to custody and access of a child. Um, the Divorce Act recently changed the terms from custody and access to parenting time and decision-making time but both married couples and common law couples do have obviously rights to uh, the children of the relationship. Another main similarity uh, common law couples have to married couples is both child support and spousal support. And the only main difference um, is that uh, uh, the act that is used to, to look at both these, these, uh, these claims. So divorced couples will be governed by the Divorce Act and the federal child support guidelines while common law couples will look at both the Family Law Act and the Ontario Child Support Guidelines. And the requirements to make out a claim for support in either child support or spousal support are the exact same regardless of the act. And the amounts listed in the guidelines are almost, the, are almost identical. And they're really, so when, when you look at it, there really is no real difference between common law and marriage in terms of child support and spousal support claims. So those are the main similarities between common law and, and married couples. That's great. And in your show notes, you're going to get a reference to our last poll question in a case called Clemens and Latner. They actually had separate residences and were dating. They're considered common law. Went to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal upheld that finding. So you'll see that in the show notes that we sent to you. All right. So what are the differences 
Um, Adam? So there are, there, are, there are quite a few differences between common law couples and married couples. First is that uh, if you are married, then the Divorce Act will govern your, your, your situation. So the Divorce Act would only apply to married couples and not the common law couples. The Divorce Act is a federal law and it only applies to couples who are married and will deal with things like divorce, custody access, child support and spousal support. Now the Family Law Act um, is a provincial act that applies to both married and unmarried uh, common law couples and will deal with the uh, division of property and debt, guardianship, parenting arrangements, contact with the child, child support and spousal support. The matrimonial home rules are also a major difference between married couples and, spouse and common law couples. Now for married couples, if you are married at the matrimonial home, is given very special treatment in Ontario. Section 18.1 of the Family Law Act defines a matrimonial home as every property in which either spouse has an interest or which is currently or was at the time of separation ordinarily occupied by the person and his or her spouse as their family residence. In Ontario, the matrimonial home is treated very differently than any other asset under the equalization process. Its value is never deducted from a spouse's net family property at the date of marriage as a date of marriage asset, even if, the, even if that spouse owned the property at the time of the marriage. For example, if you buy a house prior to getting married and your spouse moves into that home, after you are married, this house becomes your matrimonial home because it is the ordinary resident by you and your spouse. And it does not matter who is on title of the, of the home. If, you par if the parties live there as a married couple, the home is shared equal, equally upon separation. Now, this is a stark difference between common law relationships. Like I said, there is an equal benefit in a property accrued during the marriage, but not in common law. In common law, if you own property and it is in your name, then you keep it. If the property is in, the sp is in your spouse's name, then your spouse will keep it. Only if property is joint will you be able to share in the property. Under the common law, there is no division of property regime. However, there is a way for common law couples, as Bill has mentioned, to divide their property. And this is through a trust argument, uh, which, we will, uh, we, which we will get into further later on. Um, just to, to, to summarize this, if you own a home and you are a common law couple, you are not entitled to share in that uh, any increase in value from the date of marriage to the date of separation, unless you um, can establish you own an interest in that home and you bring a trust argument. Now that is the exact opposite as a, as a married couple. In a married relationship, you are considered to have a 50-50 interest in that home, whether or not you are on title or not. Another main difference between married couples and common law couples is that uh, if you are married, you will need to get a divorce order from a court to show that you are divorced and you're no longer married. If you are in a common law relationship, you are not required to receive any kind of order from a court uh, and you can simply end your common law relationship uh, by going your separate ways. Really Thanks, great, Russ. really great summary, Adam. Thank you so much. Let's run a poll and then we're gonna go to some questions. Um, so can parents make a deal in which one parent does not have to pay Child support. A couple questions we got in ahead of time. One of them, can you start living with another person and have a child while being while not being officially separated or divorced? Bill? 
I think you do whatever you want, right? Can Can you repeat that, Russ? I didn't quite hear. Can you start living with another person and have a child while being separated but not officially divorced? Yes, you can. The only thing you can't do if you're still married to someone is marry someone else. Yeah, yeah. But if you're common law, you say, yeah. yeah, go yeah. for it. Bring it. Couple questions coming in online. Thank you, everybody. Will you give it the end notes to the webinar because somebody has an appointment? Yes, you're going to get a follow up message from Stephanie with the show notes. Um, this question isn't quite on common law, but it's kind of interesting. Um, somebody's ex hired a neighbor, friend, business associate. The person doesn't like it uh, and wants the person to be removed. Um, I guess he doesn't like it because they're friends, right? Um, so we're not giving out advice, but generally it's frowned upon lawyers acting for immediate family members. Uh, oftentimes friends go to the lawyers for advice. Uh, that's a little bit more of a gray area. Um, the business might be, it, it depends if the business is related to the family assets. Maybe there could be a conflict there. Uh, lots to unpack in that question. What do you think, Bill? Well, uh, that's right. Everything you said is correct. And also, I mean, if that friend has um, sensitive information that might be uh, confidential or sensitive nature about you, then they kind of are in a conflict of interest. You don't want the lawyer representing your ex to know everything about you and about your business. So if there's a lot of knowledge there, um, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, I think it's the smell test, right? Can this lawyer dispense dispassionate and fair legal advice? Or are they taking an interest in the case in some fashion, right? That's probably the line the court's going to look at or the governing body. Another great, these are great questions. What happens when a couple legally gets married but remain in their own home in different cities? You want to take a crack at that one, Adam? I think you might yeah, have, I mean, you I don't might have two matrimonial homes, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't really see um, what the major issue with that would be. I mean, it depends whether or not the parties are, are going to be living together. I mean, if one, and, you, and I might be wrong here, Russ or, or Bill, you can jump in, but if, if the parties are living in separate cities, is there even a matrimonial home here? But they're, they're married. If they're not living together? Sure, they're married, but are they ever are they living together as an ordinary residence? It's I don't not, know. It's not too different than the cottage cases, right? Where right they go to the cottage a couple of weeks a year, and that's treated as a home, even though they're. But not are, are they? Yeah, I mean, we don't know if they're ever seeing each other. I mean, that I would mean, be so weird, know. though, Adam, if they were married and they never saw each other. Like that well, would just be bizarre. It's sort of the reverse of that other case still, though, though, right? Yeah. They both had their own homes and they're considered to be common law because yeah. they went on vacations together, right? Right. So you, I think Adam's right. It's I think we need, yeah. Back we need a little more information. Now, yeah. yeah. But sometimes the best marriages are where the people don't live together and they never see each other. Yeah. You're right, Bill. You know, there could be. The facts are going to dictate, dictate the outcome, but there's probably lawyers that will argue both sides of the case, I'm sure. Yeah. So let's see what our poll results are. Um, can parents make a deal in which one parent does not pay child support? 26% said yes. 
30% said no, 44% says it depends. Uh, I know you're going to talk about child support, Bill, but it's the right of the child. It's not the right of the parent. I don't know if you can contract out. Maybe the deal is the prepaying support, right? Um, I don't know. What do you think? Let's get into child support. See what you got to say. Well, Russ, uh, as you mentioned, child support is the right of the child. You're not allowed to bargain it away. You're not allowed to say, oh, don't worry about paying child support because it will come back to bite you and then you know what. Um, you can pay different ways. You can say, well, instead of actually paying the table man every month, I have this amount of money that came to the kid in this way and it's equivalent. That's different. But saying you're not going to pay, it don't work. Forget about it. All right. Now, what other insight do you have on child support? Well, I'm glad you asked us. Um, in the old days. Well, how many centuries are you going back? Come on. I'm going back to the 1600s. No, um, okay. In the 70s. We only have an hour. <laughs> child support used to be done on a case-by-case -case basis to see how much you'd have to pay. And this caused, uh, caused a lot of litigation. So in the 90s, the late 90s, they came up with a child support guideline and a child support table. And the table looks at how much you make, and then there's a number of how much you have to pay, depending on how much you make. So it's uh, cut and dried now. It was supposed to have reduced litigation, but the last time I checked, Russ, the courts were still pretty full, but at least there's a table now. Um, there's also an issue of being in loco parentis or being a step parent to, uh, to a child that's not yours and what happens then? Well, the answer to that is um, if you treat that child as, uh, if you develop, sorry, if you form a settled intention to treat that child as a part of your family, then you do become a step parent. And if you break up with that child's parent, you will be on the hook for child support as a step parent. Um, although you usually don't have to pay the full table amount because the biological parent will will be paying as well. So, but yeah, it, it, it's a step parent uh, child support obligation. All right, um, let's get into a poll and get back to some questions. Some of these questions are going sideways. Uh, what factor is not used in calculating spousal support? But I've got a question. Do common law spouses contribute to child support? The father's child is claiming hardship, but their combined income is more than biological mom. You want to take that, Bill? Yeah. Um, doesn't really matter what the combined income is for child support. That only really comes into play for spousal support, right. which they used to call alimony. Then you do. Well, look there at are that. hardship provisions under the child support. Well, there, yeah. I, I've never seen that. them. I've never seen them be successful. Yeah, they're that, there. That's the other thing. Um, so, so number one, you don't factor in your uh, the partner's income for child, child support purposes. And if you're claiming hardship, it's extremely difficult to do. Basically, um, you have to have another child somewhere else that you're paying support for that's not really even in the picture. And you have to be in debt because of that child support. Like you have to be really, really in financial trouble. And it's got to be because of a child support debt from someone else, then maybe you will succeed in a hardship claim. Otherwise, 
not really a good idea to try it. I think the court's going to be of the view you chose to have another child. You're on the hook. Yeah. But uh, I'm thinking our audience is having some fun with me here with these questions. And I don't even understand. Um, before we get to the poll results, would this change? I'm not sure what question we're talking about here. Uh, would this change in the instance of a friend or someone acting as a sperm donor in terms of contracting to avoid child support? So I think what that question is asking, are sperm donors off the hook? Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, sperm donors do not have to pay child support unless, um, a lot of times the donors are anonymous, but if you know who the donor is, and if it's like a friend, and then they form a friendship with the child, even though they weren't supposed to, um, then weirdly, the sperm donor becomes a step parent. I'm not joking. That's how it works. And then they have to pay support as a step parent, even though it's their biological child. If you're helping a friend with benefits to get pregnant, as long as there's no relationship, you're good or? Yeah, as long as there's no relationship. classified as a sperm donor to officially skirt your duty. Yeah, if, if you're just a donor, you don't have to pay support. But if you start hanging out with the kid, then you become a step parent, even though it's your biological child. Very weird, but that's how it works. Okay. Uh, okay. The, 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 the other parent, the other, the other parent would have to would have the onus to prove that. Yeah, they, they sue you. That's what happens. I've seen it. I've been in cases like that. Suing the donor. Well, no, the donor is giving birthday cards and showing up at Christmas time. With yes. Gifts. There's evidence yeah. that you assemble, yeah. right? We've seen it all. Yeah. Posting social media pictures with the child, right? <clears throat> okay, so we're going to back to this two-home situation. Sorry. They both have professional practices. They spend vacations, weekends, and other possible situations together. They co-own a cottage and another cottage. Well, I think you're going to have multiple homes if they're married. You're not going to be able to exclude a home unless, you know, it's not the home you bought on the date of marriage, right? You get that one quirky deduction, but all right, these questions are uh, giving me a bit of a hard time, but they're great, keep them coming in. So let's go back to our poll, not used in calculating support, length of a relationship, 2%, age of the recipient, zero, infidelity, 95%. Whether there are children in the relationship, well, pretty sophisticated audience today. I think those are pretty accurate answers. Um, I think we're talking about child spousal support. Is this one, um, who we yeah. got up here? Yeah, I'm up here, Russ. Okay, and also we got all show right, notes coming. All this stuff we're talking about child support, we got show notes coming to you about that as well. Sorry, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, let's move on to spousal support. I'm just gonna be aware of the time here. It's almost halfway through here. All right, so um, unlike child support, um, spousal support is more negotiable. There's a lot more gray area uh, than child support. And um, when you're looking at spousal support, you're looking at a range, uh, a low, medium, and a high range. So it's not just going to give you one number, like uh, like child support would. And the spousal support advisory guidelines are the starting point to determine um, what spousal support may or may not look like. So the definition of a spouse in Ontario says that any common law spouses have the same rights to spousal support as married couples, as long as they've been living together for at least three years, or if they have a child together and have been to living together in a relationship of some permanence. So I love, I love some, some permanence. Some permanence. What does that exactly. even mean? It's kind of permanent, exactly. but it's not. Anyway, sorry, so you Adam. can get in a fight, one goes and lives with their mother and then come back. 
they come back and all right sorry adam sorry to sorry to right, jump right. in adam so so there are, there are several factors that you need to prove to in, in order to establish entitlement to spousal support. Um, and the spousal support advisory guidelines will take into account many factors in determining what proper spousal support should be. They'll look at the incomes of the, of the parties, they'll look at the length of the relationship, um, and they will look at the ages of the parties upon separation when trying to determine what uh, a quantum and a range would look like. So let's talk about entitlement. There is not an automatic right to spousal support in Ontario, which is unlike child support. Uh, like I said, it's a lot, it is a lot more gray and complex um, when looking at uh, the, the differences between spousal support and child support. In Ontario, you are only eligible for spousal support under these three factors. To compensate a, a spouse for hardship or opportunities lost due to the marriage or common law arrangement or its breakdown, to fulfill a contractual agreement, expressed or implied, that the parties were responsible for each other's support, or on a non-compensatory basis to assist a spouse in need where there is a capacity to pay, even in the absence of a contractual or a compensatory foundation for the obligation. So now let's look at the factor, a length of the relationship as a factor. The spousal support advisory guidelines serve as a starting point for quantum and the duration of support. So instead of generating a definite number, the advisory guidelines formulas will provide ranges for both the amount and the duration. And then a court can choose to follow the, the guidelines or depart from them in any particular case. They will provide a range and a duration for monthly spousal support payments, but spouses are also free to negotiate the possibility of a lump sum payment. The guidelines are largely used and based on the length of the cohabitation and or the marriage. Um, the advisory guidelines will also look at whether or not there are children in the relationship. When there are not children in the relationship, the support duration ranges from half to one year of support for each year of marriage or cohabitation, with duration potentially becoming indefinite after 20 years of marriage. So since one of the factors in determining spousal support entitlement is age, the advisory guidelines suggest that indefinite support um, is uh, sorry, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought here. Sorry, uh, the, the advisory guidelines um, suggest that indefinite support, if the marriage has lasted five years or longer, and the, and the years married added to the support recipient's age at the date of We're separation to to 65 or more. We're going to get to that. This spoil my next poll. We're going to get to that. It's called the rule of 65. Okay, let's run the poll. And this let's, run the, let's run the poll because I want to hear what the audience thinks of this row of 65. But while we're waiting, we've got more questions coming in, which I love. A um, couple property questions in terms of $100,000 down payment, stay at home, upgrades in their joint tenancy, 50-50. Uh, you know, if you're common law and you own, you're on title 50-50, you're going to get your share of the property, but there's cases I've seen where people come in and pay $100,000, the court will give them that $100,000 back first before they split up the difference. Another one is X left three years ago. They appraised the house at that time. Uh, and then uh, they're wondering, do the appraisal stand or do you use market value? We've got a lot of this going on right now. Market's gone crazy. 
probably increased by a few hundred thousand dollars or more since the date of the appraisal. I would say you probably need to be on title if you want to share the increase, especially if you've not been in the home and not contributing. If you're common law and you've had the, the homes in the other partner's name and you have an appraisal as your date of separation, you're probably going to get stuck with that number. What do you think, Bill? Well, the cases go both ways on that, Russ. You're right, but um, I actually just did some research on this, and uh, um, there is really strong case law now that says um, even if you're not on title, and even if uh, you separated three years ago, they still value the house as the present day. So there, there is that can happen. Even though you haven't been in the house, you're not on title, you still can benefit through a trust claim through the increase in value. Yeah, you and I have looked at that a, yeah. a lot, Bill, over the past. It doesn't year. seem fair, but that's what some of the courts of uh, cases have done. That might be the exception, not the norm, but- No, it's not. Fair. It's actually really, it's getting to be the rule now. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Another one- so The, the answer is don't don't separate. Or settle your case. No, say or stay together. Uh, where a common law partner has been paying mortgage for over three years, being kicked out by the spouse, uh, right, can she proceed with the sale of the house if it's in her name? Well, you could probably obtain a certificate of pending litigation until your rights are determined and <clears throat> cloud title to the property to prevent the sale. Might give you some negotiation leverage as well. Uh, really great in-depth questions here, though. Thank you so much. I'm glad Bill's here with the correct answers because um, I would probably I, get it wrong. I'd like to make a quick suggestion, Russ. Sure. I'm going to devote the rest of my career to seeing if we can change the name of spousal support back to alimony because it's such a better word. Is that? It's yeah. more of an American term, isn't it? The American term, yeah. You say that like it's a bad thing. No, it's... In, in England, they call it maintenance. That's cool, too. Maintenance is cool. Alimony school, like spousal support is like, lame. Like you're maintaining your car, you're changing the oil. Kind of yeah, it's kind of like up. that. Hang on. What happened to our poll results? Did I miss them? I was talking too long. Okay. Do the Does the rule of 65 apply to common law spouses? What's the rule of 65? 35%. No, 10. Yes, 30. Depends on the facts of the case. Okay, so let's get back focused on topic. Uh, rule 65, Adam, help us out here. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from this slide here because uh, it's a little complicated. Uh, the rule 65 is when there's indefinite, but doesn't always mean forever. I know that's a little confusing as well. Uh, support will be available even in cases uh, where the marriage is shorter than 20 years. Uh, if the years of marriage plus the age of the support recipient at the time of the separation equals or exceeds 65. Um, this is known as a rule of 65. Uh, for example, thus, uh, if uh, a 10-year marriage ends when the recipient is 55, um, indefinite support will be available because the years of marriage 10 plus the age of the uh, recipient 55 equals 65. Um, this, uh, this refinement of the formula for duration is intended to respond to the situation of older spouses uh, who were economically dependent and disadvantaged possibly during a medium length marriage and who may have difficulty becoming self-sufficient given their age after a separation. So that is the rule of 65 broken down. Really important. Lots of people forget that this rule is out there. Actually an interesting court of appeal decision where 
spousal support was ter terminated, even though the rule of 65 applied, fairly recent case. Uh, so it's not forever, but it's indefinite. <laughs> only, right. only lawyers would come up with that kind of <laughs> rule. Okay, so let's run another poll. What we got up here now? Get my poll question A. Should the Family Law Act be amended to provide for common law couples to share property like married couples? Yes, share everything. Yes, but share only the home. No, don't share anything if they're not married. Other. So uh, we've got lots of questions coming in while we vote. Somebody wants to know how long you have to make a claim. Bill's going to talk about limitation periods. Um, Oh, what was somebody saying we didn't answer the question? Sorry. Um, the rule of 65 does apply to common law spouses, right, Bill? Yes. yes. Sorry. Sorry if we weren't clear on that. It applies to married and common law spouses. And uh, sorry, I'm just trying to go through these questions that are coming in kind of rapid fire. We're going to talk about the limitation period. Adam, you're going to get an email from somebody. Hopefully it's nice. Um, Cohab agreements, that's probably a topic for another live event. It's going to be pretty in-depth. Um, <clears throat> for spouses on common law, does the age factor change the formula in terms of duration? I think the answer would be yes to that, right, Adam? Yeah, I think so. All right, let's see the answer to this poll question here. So amending the act to provide for common law couples to share, 16% said yes. 16% said yes, but home only. 52% said no, uh, they're not married. So, you know, I guess if you're married, right, you've got certain rights that you're entitled to. So there's a point there. And then other. All right. So I think that ties in neatly with our next subject matter, which is property. Who's got this yep. one? Adam? I got this one, Russ. Let's move on to property. Um, so as previously mentioned, um, under the common law, you get what you bring into a relationship. Anything that is in your name is considered to be yours. Anything that is in the opposing party, the other person's name is considered to be theirs. That includes any assets, debts, or any other obligations. Any jointly owned property is treated as a joint asset and is shared equally upon separation. So let's talk about the house. If you are both on title of the home, you share it equally meaning you split the proceeds upon a sale or there could be a buyout from one spouse to the other. If only one party of the relationship is on title of the home, it becomes a lot more complicated and could give rise to, um, to the trust claims as we've already discussed. Um, however, it is very difficult to make this argument and the onus is on the party to bring these claims to prove their entitlement to the interest in the home. Uh, the, um, the common law um, property is not the same as a matrimonial home. There is no legal right to possess the home and um, a trust claim is needed to um, be able to, to obtain an interest in that property. Now, trust claims started as um, under the law of equity and whereby it would be unfair or unequitable not to share in the value of a property's increase. And there are different ways for a common law party to obtain property and or money from that individual property from the other spouse. Um, one way to proceed is by um, something called a constructive trust. 
A constructive trust allows a cohabitating spouse who is not on title to gain a right to a property in a particular asset, such as the home, whereby that cohabitating spouse who has stayed in the home, maybe with children and completed um, some housework or domestic services of a home, may be awarded a monetary award or a constructive trust over the home um, where their contribution is connected to the home itself. Uh, a spouse who is seeking a constructive trust must establish four different requirements. They must be able to prove that their contribution of either money or labor enriched the legal title holder of the property in question. They have to have prove an enrichment of the other spouse resulting in a corresponding deprivation to the contributor. Um, they must prove that there is no jurisdic jurisdiction reason for the enrichment, anything that might be explained uh, whereby there, uh, any, by, um, any, any contract or gift. And there must be a connection between the contribution made and the improvement of the property in question. Another way to proceed is a resulting trust. A resulting trust arises when one individual pays or helps pay for a piece of property, yet legal title still vests with the other individual. It would seem unfair to not allow that individual who funded the acquisition or the property to retain some interest in that property. Therefore, he or she may become a beneficial interest, uh, interest holder and a presumed legal title holder and holding um, a, um, a, a a legal title holder is being held as a beneficial owner in a trust. And the main differences between a resulting and a constructive trust, a constructive trust allows an individual to share in the value of a property, even though he or she is not a legal title holder. This is due to the fact that they helped contribute to the value of the property through other work or money, making it unfair to provide the to, to, to deprive that person from a share in the increase in value of that property. Unlike a resulting trust, there is no need to find any evidence of a common intention to establish. Now the final um, thing to look at underneath trust claims is a joint family venture. A joint family venture occurs where during a relationships, both parties contributed to the, to the accumulation of family wealth. And it would be unjust um, um, for one party to be um, to to make a claim against the other party, an unjust enrichment arises if the parties separate, and one party retains a disproportionate amount of the accumulated wealth. To make a claim for a uh, joint family venture, um, you have to be able to prove four factors: that there is a mutual effort by the parties, there is an e economic integrate integration of the parties' finances. There is an actual intention of the parties, and there is a priority of the family. Thanks, Russ. Really, really helpful. And we had a lot of questions come in on these trust claims. Uh, these trust claims can get complicated. We do have a common law 201 advanced themes live event. So if you wanna learn more, take a deeper dive, go to the advanced version of this program that we have present, we're presenting. It'll be on the schedule that we send out. All right, so let's do another poll question. It's been a couple minutes. We gotta get back to the polls. Which of these factors is not an indicator of a joint family venture? So I think if you're listening to Adam, you'd know, right? Like if you're taking notes, 
mutual effort, loyalty, known fidelity, economic integration, priority of the family. And just a reminder, all difficult questions go to Bill. Adam and I are gonna take the easy ones. <laughs> but the questions have been fantastic. Thank you so much for sending in the questions. Um, let's go into our next topic, which is parenting rights and responsibilities. But here are the poll results. And yes, our audience is getting it 91%. Infidelity doesn't affect your claims. Very good. Pretty tuned in audience today. So parenting rights, Bill? Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, did you want to cover anything off about joint family venture? I thought you did a great job, Adam. I just want to say that infidelity is something like a lot of people say, look, uh, my, my partner cheated on me. Isn't that, doesn't that mean anything? And the answer in law, it does not, as you just said. But personally, I think the person who cheats should at least get a ticket. You know what I mean? Like a traffic. Well, Bill, that's a question. That's a, that's a question we get almost every day, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the answer is, it used, it used to matter in yeah. the old days. The, the question is, do I get more? They cheated on me, right? So why yeah. did they get half? It doesn't mean anything, but it used to in the old days, but they changed it all to no fault. So just, uh, again, I think they should get a ticket. Um, parenting rights. Um, parenting uh, is the same uh, as Adam mentioned. Just doesn't matter if you're married or not, the law is the, exactly the same. Um, and one interesting aspect of parenting is something called status quo. And the courts want to maintain um, status quo, generally speaking, because they want stability for the kids. So if, if the kids are spending every second weekend, uh, let's say with dad, that often happens, um, and then dad wants to jump to a 50-50 schedule, um, it can be done, but it's not gonna get done overnight because the status quo it's just every second weekend. They want stability for the children. So if you want to increase the parenting time, it's going to take a lot of patience and it's what's in the best interest of the child that matters. The status quo is super important for that. Um, the other interesting point to me is that parenting time and decision-making are two different things. So deciding about the kid, um, things like education, healthcare, uh, religion, um, extracurricular activities, those big decisions, um, they have nothing to do with where the kid lives. So uh, you have to treat those as separate issues. Um, sometimes you'll get, and then, you know, a lot of times you'll get 50 50 uh, residency and all the decisions are made together. And that's typically the best uh, way to do it for the kids. But there's a million different fact scenarios out there, really depends. Um, the voice of the child, last point here, um, people say, well, we want the voice of the child to be heard. And yes, the voice of the child should be heard. And it usually is heard by the courts. But if the kids are young, um, it's not determinative. The court will take into account the views and preferences of a child, but it's not, it doesn't make the decision. They, uh, um, kids are too young. Uh, Adam's going to talk about what happens when common law couples separate. Yeah, so, so like I already mentioned, there's no need for any court order or divorce when common law couples separate. Um, normally when common law couples separate, uh, the parties try to deal with these matters out of court if possible. Um, 
they try to draft a separation agreement, they potentially could go to mediation, they'll negotiate the terms potentially, um, they will potentially go uh, through the collaborative process, all in the hopes of being able to try to obtain a separation agreement. And if, you know, the, the couple is unable to agree on terms, then um, they may be uh, forced to proceed to court. Um, and if, um, if the parties have already had an agreement in place um, or they had a court order um, and they want to try to change that, they can attempt to do that by way of negotiation and then drafting a revised or amended um, agreement. Uh, if they had a court order in the past and they want to change that, um, they may have to go back to court and bring a motion to change if they're unable to agree on the terms um, to try to get a new order in place. Uh, so some of the, those are some of the things that uh, that common law couples um, will have to do upon separation. But you know, we always push um, to try to resolve things as amicably as possible. Um, you know, outside the court, uh, the court system, uh, which will save you know what we find our clients a lot of stress, time, and and money as well. Really helpful. Thank you, Adam. Let's go to our final poll question. Are limitation periods to make claims for common law couples the same? We're going to get to, to this in a minute. Uh, so everybody put your answers up there. Then we're going to wrap up with limitation periods. Then we're going to bring our host back and do some more Q&A. So thank you, everyone. Question from our audience, Bill. For a common law court case, litigants need to file Form 13-1 financial statement or Form 13. Depends, I guess, right? If you're making a property claim. Yeah, it's. I, I just dealt with that very question. Um, the 13.1 is the one that has property and it's the one that married people use. So if you're not married, why would you use a 13.1 form that shows you know, what you had on the date you got together and what you had that you separated? Um, normally you don't use that for common law, but the common practice now among family lawyers is that they do make a 13.1 financial statement even if the parties aren't married. They call it a mock-up. But and, the, court, uh, the court needs the information to evaluate well, it, right? Yeah, yeah. so it, it's a good idea to do one. And you kind of look like a jerk if you're a lawyer and you refuse to do one. Um, so it's kind of weird. It shows that common law are being treated more and more similarly to married people. And that's a good example. They do use that paperwork a lot of times, even though it's not really, strictly speaking, applicable to common law. But if... If you put the issue squarely before the court, the court's going to order the disclosure to make an, yes, absolutely. an evaluation of the claim. So yep. let's take a look yep. at our poll results here. Uh, are they the same? Yes, 20, no, 27. Depends what it being what claims are being made. What is the limitation period? Yeah, I ask myself that question sometimes. Got some great questions coming in about foreign properties, question coming in about um, Offsetting occupation rent. We'll try to get to those. Just give us a few minutes, but let's talk about limitation periods and then we're gonna go into Q&A. So Bill, two minutes or less. Yeah. Um, the limitation period for common law people for making a, uh, a property claim, which as we've discussed is a trust claim um, because you're common law. Um, if you are making the claim with respect to a piece of real estate, like a house, and almost all these claims do, almost all these trust claims do involve real estate, then you have 10 years 
from the time of separation. So uh, that's that's a lot of time. Um, if you're making a trust claim, but there's no real estate involved, which is highly unusual, then um, it's iffy. Uh, you may have a two-year limitation on that from data separation, but it's very iffy and very flexible, and you can probably extend it. You, again, usually there's real estate involved. Last time we did this, we had a good analysis of whether a claim could be made against a pension. Yeah. I said I yes, it can. Yes, it can. I, I said I have never seen any, and we talked about it. Adam gave me a case from Madam Justice Craft where yep. probably the first yeah. one I've seen that a claim would be made against a pension. So not to put you on the spot, what would the limitation period be for that? 10 years? Uh, well, pension is not real estate, so it wouldn't be 10 years for a pension. It would be... Uh, maybe two years, like the, the, the starting point is two years from date of separation because a pension is not real estate. But again, that two-year limitation is highly flexible. It's never been litigated, but uh, I would say you could extend it. But if you're worried about a limitation period, get in and talk to a lawyer. Yeah. It doesn't have to be one of us. Talk to a lawyer, make sure you're not yeah. going to have yeah. an expired claim because then you're going to spend more money chasing it down. So I think our host is going to be coming back up. Great analysis, Bill. Thank you so much for sharing that. And do some Q&A, and then we're going to bring this train into the station. Steph, welcome back. All right, so we had a lot of questions coming in. Russ, are there any that stand out that you want to tackle before well, we close off? there's just so many great questions, right? It's hard to pick one. Um, it was a foreign property question. Yeah, um, how do foreign properties get split, such as cottages in different jurisdictions? I would say they're divided in accordance with the Family Law Act. The more important yeah, question yeah. is how do you enforce it? Right. If you got a, a villa in Spain, you know, yep. you're going to need to enforce an Ontario order if the other spouse is not cooperative or offset it against assets in Ontario. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, you, you end up off. If they, don't, if they don't cooperate, you end up offsetting. Like you'll take the foreign property into account. And then if they're not going to sell it and pay you what your share is, then you take it out of something they have here. Okay. You also have the issue of determining the value, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Getting something appraised overseas would be a lot more difficult. To get I recommend going there. directly to Spain and making a dirt disbursement about that. Have a <laughs> holiday. Steph, one more. I'm just going to jump the queue here because this is a big question, but I think the gist of it is for trust claims against a property, how is occupation rent treated and set off? So if you're occupying somebody else's portion of the property, there's a notional occupation rent there. Maybe not if they don't own the property, right? Um, Normally occupation rent is for people who are on title. Right. And, and it's very, very difficult to get occupation rent. It all sounds good, right. but you can basically forget about it. Well, the person has to be either excluded by a court order or conduct that they can't return to the property, right? It's a fair- And even then it's hard to get. Yeah. Very hard. It's a, it's a challenging claim, correct? Yeah, I agree with Bill. Yeah. I mean, you could try it, but- Lots It's good to talk about it because it makes you sound really sophisticated. Just keep <laughs> mentioning the word occupation, right? But no, you're never going to get it. Well, it's a new, people use it as a nuisance way to negotiate a resolution, right? You know, occupation rent claims 80 grand. I want to set it off and, you know, they'll blow off $30,000 in legal fees talking about it. It's not a very practical claim, I think is what you're saying. We better wrap it up. This has been a fantastic right. discussion. 
it's amazing. We had so many questions popping in. Uh, so thank you again, Adam, Bill, and Russ. Um, and thank you everyone in the audience for taking the time to join us for today's presentation. We hope you found the content helpful. And thank you so much again uh, for attending. And thank you so much, panelists. You were amazing as always. And we hope you all have a lovely weekend. And our next presentation has Melanie Russell and Jason Kowalski, which are just fantastic experts in business valuations. So you're not going to want to miss that one. It's going to be a really good discussion. Steph, we got 12.59 on the clock. You going to give us a sing out here or what? I don't think anyone's ears want to hear that. It just flipped over I, to one o'clock. Just flipped over to one o'clock. You're perfect. right on time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank Adam. you. Great job today. Thank you.